0: Um, are in Ephesians 4, so if you got your Bibles, why don't you flip over to that chapter. If you don't have a Bible with you, we're going to put it up on the screen so uh, you won't be lost in the journey. If you've been here a long time, you know I've used this illustration too much, you're sick of it, but I love to work on cars. Beyond it being therapeutic and very enjoyable, I calculated a better reason this weekend of why I like to work on cars. It's because they're not like people. You know... They don't emote, they don't feel, they don't exaggerate, they don't get angry, they they don't uh, take uh, a particular concern and exaggerate it to huge proportions. There's never misunderstanding when I'm working on a car. If there's a broken part, I find the broken part, I replace the part, all good. Everybody's happy. Wouldn't you like it if we were like that? Caught you. Because it's sort of true. If you were here last week, we talked about this. There is a, the biggest event in human history is the description when God comes after sinners to such a degree, he takes this warring, stubborn, as Paul describes, dead, hard, unresponsive, callous heart, and he transforms it by the love of Christ and the gospel of Jesus into a living new creature. And as far as the gospel is concerned, that part change. Changed everything, right? It's what he says, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he's a what? New creation. The old is gone and the new has come. That's, that's how definitive Paul is about this whole wonderful heart transplant that God has performed on, on sinners through the, through the gospel. And if you were here last week, the bulk of what we talked about was this idea of what God does to transform us into the image of Jesus. If we go through it, and I don't have the time to go through all of it, but if all you did was hang out in chapter 2 of Ephesians when Paul is describing the scope and the size of the problem, he starts with this. You're, You're dead in your transgressions and sins. You're without hope and you're without God. You're unuseful. You're just that person without Christ. And what Jesus does, the good news is that he arrives and he changes us. And a couple wonderful things happens. We become the treasure of God. We were once not a people. Now we are the people of God. That's what Peter tells us. And and we've heard this before too. John says it in 1 John 3. The, the great love of God, the lavishness of God's love, is demonstrated in this that He has made us His children, and that's exactly who you are. Outsiders at war, dead and callous in sin, <laughs> made his kids. The possession of God, the treasured possession of God. That's what we talked about last week. And not only does he make us his treasure, he makes us into his very image. God, in other words, doesn't just save, he transforms those that he saves. He restores us. And if you want the whole picture of this story, the story goes like this, the big picture of the story, that there is a way that God intends, intended for us to live, and sin spoiled everything. The relationship that man once had with God, spoiled by sin. The relationship we have to each other, spoiled by sin. The relationship that we have to ourselves, how we see ourselves, what we think makes us happy, what we think manages our issues is distorted, spoiled by sin. And let me just suggest to you that in those three relationships, our relationship to God, our relationship to others, and to ourselves in those three relationships, every sin ever dreamed up on the planet Earth is related to those three relationships. Every sin. Just put them in their classification. They're under the relationships there. But here's what we learned Ephesians 2, after the gory description and definition of what we are without God, here's what Paul stops and says. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So here's a question for us this morning. Since God really has truly blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, and that's what Paul told us in chapter 1, verse 3, remember? If that's true, and since it's true, don't you think God would have a plan for his treasured people to actually realize every spiritual blessing? Now, some of these questions I ask you might be complicated, but that isn't one of them. Don't you think he'd have a plan for us to realize the, every blessing? Of course he would. And feel free. Well, let's just pretend we're Baptists this morning. You yell out whatever, whatever you want. If in doubt, yell, Jesus, that's a pretty good answer for everything. Don't you think God should have the right to command that his people live according to the new life he died to give us? Okay, I, I'm, I'm glad that was your answer because what, what we have just begun in the last half of Ephesians in this letter is where Paul begins to unpack what it looks like to live that life that you just said God had the right to command us to live. He tells us in detail what this new life is in very specificness. In fact, he started this whole discussion in chapter four, verse one. Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Calling, chapter one, two, three. The walk, chapter four, five, six. Get it? That's what you're to walk in. We looked at this verse last week. Therefore, verse 17 of chapter 4, no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In other words, don't walk like your culture. Don't walk like you used to walk when you didn't have Christ. When you're outside looking in, when your heart was dead, hard and cold and callous to sin. Don't walk like that anymore. Walk like Jesus has you. Walk differently. And if you were here, and I want to review this, Paul doesn't just tell us to stop. He tells us the why. And he has in verses 18 and 19 this very hard description of what our life was like before. He says this. Speaking of the Gentiles, of what kind of way we lived before Christ, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart, they have become callous and given themselves over to stop everything. That was the description. And Paul uses it as reason number why not to walk like the Gentiles do because that's not you anymore. Your heart isn't hard. It is not dark. It is not dead and you're not callous to sin. God has resurrected the you. He's resurrected your heart. You used to think it was odd. You used to call the good news foolish. You used to stand at a distance and say, I'll be in charge of me only to have sin wreck you. And when you get to the end of that and you see the good news of Jesus, you go, I want it. And Paul simply goes to that whole experience and says, this whole description of life as a Gentile is not you anymore. You wanna know why you can walk not like the Gentiles do? It's because you're not hard, dead, cold, and callous. You're just not. God's made you new. He gives us another reason that we've learned Christ, verse 20. I, I told you, I used a quote by another gentleman. He said, we've been to the school of Christ. We've learned Christ. We've been taught by Christ. We've been in the environment of Christ. We're in relationship with Christ. It's personal for Christ and us. That's why. Not only has this, this former life been killed, but a new life has shown up. I've been taught in Christ, according to Paul. And if you're sitting here this morning and you go immediately to the details, which, if you're a thinker, you probably should, and I and I do it. Okay, okay, I get it. Okay, I'm not the old person anymore. Okay, I get it. I'm the new person. What 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 about the problems? What about the uh, struggle with my issues? What, what about my failure? What about my Repeated, rep- repeated confessions about this particular category of sin. What, what about my struggles? What about those things? Is there any hope for those things? And and I think Paul gives it an answer in verses twenty-two through twenty-four. He, he talks about putting off the old man and putting on the new man. This is a past event that has a, I guess, an ongoing, everyday activity involved. You have been crucified with Christ. You are a new creature in Christ Jesus, but there's this activity we do as new creatures. We put off, which is it was pretty simple. It's just confessing and rejecting all the other things, all the things that frustrate us, all the things we confess. You call them what they are, and you reject them, and you put on the life of Christ, meaning you just pretend like Jesus. You do what Jesus did. It's pretty simple. So you remove and replace. That's that whole idea. You don't just take sin out. You put righteousness in And if you don't do both, you will never see victory. If you just hate the sin because it makes you miserable, welcome, welcome to sin. But if you will not include the righteous life of Christ, you will never know joy. Because you'll always be here going, it's so hard. I can't get it. Do both. Remove and replace. Make sense? So big picture again is that God puts to death the old me. As Paul said in Romans 6, our old self is crucified in Christ And he renews our mind. And then it says this in Titus, and this is the amazing part of this transformative work that he does to renew us. He says that he saved us, not because of works done by our righteous deeds, and that's kind of loosely termed, your best activities, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration. Here's the phrase, and renewal of the Holy Spirit. He, He changes it. There's a renewing that goes on and he makes us like Jesus. In fact, Romans 8, I'm certain you have it memorized. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ. You know that verse, right? You believe that verse? So God, the sovereign Lord of the universe has a plan to shape you. He's got a plan to make you like Jesus. There's nothing you can do to stop that. It's happening. The plan of God will come to fruition his plan to form us in the image of Christ. Okay, let's make a mark in the sand right there and transition into our conversation today. Everything else we're going to say in this study in Ephesians will be the precision and the clarity on what the image of Christ looks like. What does he love? What does he hate? What does he do? What does he not do? What is the heart of Christ? These three chapters will tell us what Christ is like. And if, if what you say, and I heard you say a little murmur, yeah, yeah, okay, and some of you nodded your heads, you kind of agreed that he's made this promise to conform you into his image, well, for the next 16 weeks, we're going to look at his image, all right? Then you're also looking in the mirror, because that very image that we look at for these 16 weeks is the image he is imprinting in your life someday somebody say amen. Okay. So he starts a list, the list of things to, re, to reject and the things to replace. And this is my confession. You might not feel this way, but to my assessment, if I'm honest, this isn't the kind of list that turns most of our cranks. Another mechanical illustration for those of you who are interested. We prefer something much more grand than what Paul is going to start unpacking for us in these few chapters. You know, let me give you an example. Ephesians 2, 5 and 6. This is how Paul, in response to this, this wonderful gospel that takes dead people and makes them live, he says this. And this is where we like to hover When we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Now, this is the verse we love. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Tell me about reign. Tell me about rule. Tell me about the future. Tell me when I'm in heaven with Jesus. And we like to talk about that. And Paul said it in Ephesians, but it's not what he spends three chapters talking about. What he goes to is the very practical, very down-to-earth issues Common issues we all face, and they all have to do with one category of thought how you and I treat each other. And if we're just going to be obvious. When Jesus was asked the question, what do I do? What's the most important thing to do in relationship to God? And he says, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. First commandment, greatest commandment. Second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Everything we do from the moment of conversion is figuring out how to love God through the channels of loving others. And that's why this is going to get really down and dirty, and it's going to get into some places we kind of just ignored because that's just the way we are. It's going to get real. I'm going to give you some examples. He's going to talk about anger. He's going to talk about stealing. He's going to talk about our mouths and how we use them. He's going to talk about sex. He's going to talk about relationships with the family. He's going to talk about our relationships at work and then some. I told you it's not ruling and reigning stuff. It's everyday stuff. So let me go back to the question I asked you last week. Do you think our culture has an effect on us? Way to go. I love that. I think there's a possibility that we walk more like our world than we walk like our Savior. Do you think there's a possibility? And this is where I think that there's all sorts of behaviors that our world operates on, and they're so like the world we came out of. It's so saturated in everything that we do that sinful behaviors are in the church and we don't even realize it? Any possibility? Yeah, I think so too. And I want you to know something else as we dig into this. The most frequent transgressions of God's people tend to be the most accepted sins of our culture it's it's the proverbial frog in hot water syndrome everything's hot in here everything does this i just don't even notice it so i understand or at least i hope this might be an assumption here but nobody in this room is killing anybody right amen <laughs> but getting angry you might not write a list of who you're bitter at but there's a list do we do that? Worry, panic, stress. We use our words as weapons against the people we've identified as our enemies. We've got lots of lists of those. We're lazy when we should be working and serving. Now we're getting real. And I told you, I told you Paul wants to get Real. These things that we just assume are the way it is aren't the way for God's people. Let let me just prove it to you. Look at chapter five, verses one and two. This is where God, his transformative work, is taking us. Therefore, be imitators of who? Of God. As beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Listen, bride of Christ, that is where we're going. There is no room for nuance when it comes to sin. So I don't know your life, not in that kind of detail, but the Spirit of God does. And the Spirit of God is here. And so when we start talking about these everyday common things, the kinds of things you tell your children about, do not assume this belongs to someone else. Look at it. Ask God to search you and sift you and see the corners of your life and your heart where these things hang out and have justification, where we end up looking like our culture and not imitating our God. Fair? Okay. For the next several weeks, we're going to look at what Jesus would and wouldn't do. And today we get to deal with this one, lying and telling the truth. Ephesians 4, I'm gonna back up and run at verse 25 just to kind of make sure we understand context. But again, after describing what the heart of of the unbeliever looks like, and we're not like that anymore, he says in verse 20, but that's not the way you learn Christ, assuming or because you've heard about him and taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and corrupt thought, deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. There's our verse, therefore, having put away falsehood, let, let each, each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. How simple is that? Come on, how simple is that? Let's practice. Let's practice, and I want you to answer me, otherwise I'm not going to preach the rest of the sermon. What are we supposed to not do? What are we supposed to do? Why? Because we're members of one another. Any questions? Because we can go home because you just taught yourself verse 25. Isn't that how simple it is? Don't lie. Tell the truth. Why? Because we're members of one another. Now, obviously, I'm going to keep talking. And there's a reason why. If I talked about lying equal to the amount of times we lie, we're going to be here a while. Because we lie. 30-plus years ago, there was a book that was written that, that was entitled The Day America Told the Truth, and it's surveys of the thousands of people they asked They kind of concluded that 91% of the people lie. And we've gotten so much better in 30 years. Right? Don't you feel good how we've progressed? No, it's not that good. Someone did a survey of children And they said by age four, 90% of children have figured out the concept and the technique of lying. Four. I was an expert at one. (laughs) University of Massachusetts Studies says that 60% of adults can't have a 10-minute conversation without a single lie. In fact, when they measured it, it was typically three lies per conversation. 40% of people lie on their resumes. (laughs) This one made me giggle. They asked people about their online dating profiles. 90% 90% of the people lied there. No, there's no way that happens. People are truthful. Do you, you want to know the number one lie girls make in those things? Wait, you know what guys lie about? Success. Height. <laughs> Success. There's a sermon there, and I might preach that someday. But but here's a truth about, about our problem. This issue of lying is so easy for us to see and perceive in others and so potentially blind to ourselves. I know when someone is fudging the issues with me. I sense it, I feel it. But I've got these buckets, these places where I navigate in falsehoods all the time. And I don't even feel it anymore because that's just the way it is. And, And by the way, when we come through all these very practical things that we're about to deal with over the next several weeks, that will also be true. Easy to spot these in others, almost impossible to see in ourselves. What types of lies do we tell? You might be sitting here with a little resistance to me calling you a liar. I haven't called you a liar yet. I'm hoping your soul calls you a liar. That's the game plan. And we would define lies maybe simply as uh, outright falsehoods and that clearly is a lie and therefore you go, I don't tell outright falsehoods and so I'm innocent. Well, let me just add to you your definition of lying. Exaggerations are a form of lying. Make the story better, make you look better, make other people look worse. No any exaggerators. Minimalizing is a form of lying. If it's some problem that I've created, if I minimalize it, it makes it less intense for me. I've told you this, I think this illustration years ago, I, I, I on occasion will buy a car, I was buying a car for my kid and I have never, ever, ever been taken. Ever, ever, but once. I bought a car and I drove it four miles down the road and I knew, I just knew my soul just went, it's bad. And look in the mirror and there's smoke running out of the tailpipe and I go, oh. And of course, there's pride involved because I don't ever get taken in cars. And I came home and I didn't want to open the hood. I didn't want to look at the dipstick. Didn't want to check the motor because when you do that, you're accountable, right? Then you're, God will kill you if you tell somebody to buy this car. So I just put it right back on Craigslist. And all I put on there was, needs TLC. It needs more TLC and I sold it and then I bought it back because I felt convicted and I lost my shirt. How about blame shifting as a form of lying? How about victimhood? Now let me condition that word because I understand when we talk about victimizing, or being a victim, that there are truly legitimate victims in our world, in our church, people who've been abused and hurt and and put through the ringer. I understand that, but you also understand that our culture is a culture of victimhood. We can divert responsibility and conviction if it's somebody else's fault. So why wouldn't you? It's a great technique. How about this? Talking about things we know nothing about or twisting what we think we do. Great version of lying. And by the way, I would tell you it's the most obvious version of lying I witness in the church. When there's controversies that boil up in the church, it typically happens around this, and there's a rule of thumb that works out these things we know nothing about. We have a tendency to fill in the blanks with the most pathological techniques. That's just in us too. So if we don't have this whole story, we'll fill it in with suspicion. Ugh, sounds bad, right? Now, if I widened the lens and said, look at our world, you would know this. Our society runs on this idea. Those who study persuasion, persuading people to feel things, study this, and they've got a term for the problem that we have in our culture. They call it perfect the enemy. It is to portray others so negatively that no reasonable person can help but hate them and oppose them. We do that. We have some of the story, parts of the story, pieces of the story from our perspective from a long ways away. But I've determined who the enemies are and so I will perfect my enemy. And the only conclusion you can have is agree with me and hate who I hate. You're smiling because you know that's our world, right? And it's creeped in to the church. Making making commitments uh, that you don't follow through on is a form of lying. I'll pay you, I'll commit to you, here's our contract, here's my agreement, not really. And you're supposed to fill it in with good intentions, but you didn't follow through. That's a form of lying. Cheating in business, cheating in taxes, time clock, school, blah, 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 forms of lying. I, I, I don't want to keep going because I think you're getting the point. The issue of lying goes way far deeper in farther places than I think we normally think. And here's a couple of truths about lies. They're gonna hurt you. Lies do not do what you think they do. Lies will hurt you. They will hurt your reputation. You lie because of fear, but the problem with lying is fear goes up. It doesn't go down. Stress goes up, not down, and influence drops like a rock. You want to know why you shouldn't lie? If it was just about you watching out for number one, then you wouldn't because it hurts you. It hurts other people. We let other people down. We, we There's messes. There's always messes when we lie, and it is interesting that when we Use lying to manage the messes. It's typically the people closest to us that we say we love that have to manage and deal with all the mess. Lies distort reality and are pieces of every other sin. Lies are how we justify stupid sinful actions and we know they are and then they become the very blinder to the sin. Can't see it. Lies serve insecurity and self-enhancement. If you want just a type of picture, just grab any social media thing in the world, and how do people present themselves? Not like they are. This whole thing exists to perpetrate some version of me that I think you're gonna like, because I'm desperate that you accept me. Regardless that the God of the universe calls you his child, died to make you his own treasured possession, no, really, I'm more interested in those people that they think I think well, or they think I'm beautiful, or they like me, and so I'll perpetrate a version of me that makes me acceptable and is driven by insecurity. A person who does not believe how loved you are and how much that love matters. It serves for a self-defense, a protection mechanism. Man, I got problems and the best way to deal with my problems is to pretend like I don't have them. Here's another truth about lies. They come in bunches. Lies are like Lay's potato chips. No one can do just one right? It just happens. You lie, you got to lie to lie to lie. You you just got to pack them in there because there's no way to cover your tracks without lying. And most lies are made up of truth, pieces of truth, partial truth, just so I can get by. So do we lie? Yep, we lie. And I'm not telling you that to try to make us feel bad. I try to want to get you all to the discussion about lying, because this is where the rubber meets the road. Lying in all its forms are so very common, and it always has been. Lying was the second act in Genesis. God made, Satan lied, we're all screwed. That's how it went. Sorry if that was too rough, but I just felt that right there. It's interesting, the prophet Isaiah, the very first thing out of his mouth after a vision of God was, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. That's us. So lying to Paul's audience in Ephesus was a problem as well. The Greeks who were converted to Christ brought that acceptable sin right into the church with them, just like we have. Lying is the native tongue of our land. Like, why wouldn't we bring this in? That's how I learn business. That's how I raise my children. That's how I respond to my parents. That's how I do school. That's how I do athletics. That's how I do everything. I, I lie. It's some form. And Paul simply commands the church, you've been made new. You've been made alive. You have Christ in you. Put away falsehood and speak the truth to one another. He says it like this in Colossians chapter three, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices you have, and have put on the new self you have, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Simple command, right? Anybody need to know what to do when we leave here today? Come on, does anybody need help in understanding what we're supposed to do? Do not what? All right. Let me give you some reasons, and I hope these reasons are what drive us to obey. Reason number one, because of grace. If I lay down to you things that Paul does here, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that, what does that sound like to us? Legalism? Moralism? Isn't that how every other religion in the world climbs its moral ladder to some version of God to be accepted? Isn't that what you do? You do these things? Well, this command isn't legalism, it is not moralism, I'll tell you, it is the gospel. The good news isn't do this and live. That's not what the good news is. The good news is Jesus has done everything, therefore you have life. Do you see the difference? Life, what does a living person do? Someone who's been given life by Christ does what? Speaks the truth. Dead people have to lie. We don't have to lie. And we don't don't tell the truth to be loved, we don't tell the truth to be saved, we don't tell the truth to be converted or participate in our conversion. Conversion, the good news, the gospel, what Jesus did was give life to people who weren't even looking for it. Romans 8. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. An amazing, an amazing truth. If you and I turn from our bad and turn from our good, and what I mean by that is the things we think God owes us something for. Turn from bad, turn from good, and turn to Jesus alone. Then what the gospel says is that we are forever declared righteous and holy, period. You are a new creature in Christ period, by the work of Christ, period, nothing to be added. You want to know why to tell the truth? Because of grace. God lavished on you what you wouldn't do yourself and what you cared not about. He gives it to you and you are now his forever. Love drives behavior. Affections are new. I love him. I don't want to lie. Right? And the wonderful Second half of that gospel goodness, that grace, is that not only we're saved, we're freed, and we're empowered to be different. And watch this we get to be like Jesus, we get to put on Jesus. And Jesus didn't lie, and Jesus told the truth. Let me give you a second word of why. Because of the body. That's the idea that Paul uses in verse 25 where he says, because we are members of one another. Let, let me give you a way to think about this. Lying is spiritual lupus. Do you know what lupus is? It's an autoimmune disease that basically takes the immune system and turns it against what is designed to protect. Basically, your immune system attacks healthy cells and healthy body parts. One writer called... Um, a lie as a stab to the very vitals of the body of Christ. Lies either build up or they tear down. By the way, there are no such thing as neutral words with one another. There aren't words that are lies and words that are truth, and then this gray area where we can do whatever you want. They build up or they tear down, period. It's either that it joins us or it divides us. In other words, telling the truth is not just about you or I getting it right telling the truth is about the unity of the church because we belong to each other. What, what, if, what if my eyes lied to my feet? I go over. I get hurt. What if my nerves lied to my hand and I reached into a fire and I couldn't feel heat? I'd lose my hand. If, it, if the body lies to itself, Paul says, That doesn't make any sense. You tell the truth because you belong to each other. You build each other up. You don't tear each other down. Why would you hurt yourself is Paul's argument. Does that make sense? We tell the truth because of grace and because of the body. And let me give you one last one. Because of our witness. Paul has told us that because of God's wonderful grace, that he has opened our eyes, that he has given us faith, and he's made us new. We are to put off the old and put on the new but the reason why we don't lie is not just just only specifically because of grace and for the body, because telling the truth puts our God on display. That's why. God's people, in other words, tell the truth. And the world will know we're God's people because what? We tell the truth. Not very complicated. I suppose there's another way we could know or the world could know we're all God's people. We could all go down to Target and all buy the same color shirts and just say we're all going to be red people and we're going to be green people or whatever. That's how they're going to know. Silly, but I'm going to make you a point. Um, We don't wear the same clothes, but we do wear the same life, the life of Christ. We are to put on Christ. Christ. When you go out, you're wearing the jacket of the gospel. You're wearing Christ. The world sees Christ in how you talk and share truth and how you run from lying. They see it in you. When you love your neighbor as yourself, they see you wearing Christ. They can tell that we belong to one another, that we belong to our savior, because we put on Christ and he is truth. John 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said in John 13, all men will know, you are my disciples if you love one another. Listen, the language of love is truth. That's how That's how they're gonna know. L- let me close with this. I got like a few minutes. But that, those are simply the whys. I-, I think there's some other nuance, like not nuance to this, but like skill in it, wisdom in it. Because you could run off and go, all right, today, starting today, everybody's getting the truth. Brace yourself, and then we got problems, okay? So I I wanted to just try to give you some wisdom along with those absolutes and see how this might help you. I'm gonna give you four things that telling the truth requires. Skill, humility, timing, and touch. Skill, humility, timing, and touch. Skill. To tell the truth does not mean to tell everything we know. It's not a demand to empty the guns. That's not what this is. In fact, being truthful isn't in conflict with keeping confidences. That should be obvious to you. There are things when you consider, well, if this person gets that information that they don't necessarily need, it could cause this side effect. So you have to think. There's some skill in it. There's some wisdom in it. There's some of that there. The second word I'll give you is humility. There's a lot of problems that happen for us when we're absolutely convinced that we're right and so we run with that mindset and we run into other people. Let me just suggest to you, that is not the life of Christ. It's not the life of his church. The life of the church would do itself such a great service to one another and to the world watching if we just pretended, not pretended, but actually lived like we don't know everything. You know, when issues happen out there, when the world's responding to the chaos, and you're certain that your version, because you're so smart, is the conclusion of everybody, everyone should get this version, and they should all think like me, and then you get that wonderful little stupid device, and you say something to people... Can I just suggest to you, I don't care if you think you got the truth, be humble. Just choose to put another little gap in your thoughts. Like, maybe I don't know everything. Maybe I haven't walked a mile in their shoes. Maybe maybe Christ would not respond. I don't know. I just, I just, if you're gonna question anybody, it's you. I'll give you a third word. Timing. When you tell the truth does matter. It just does. All you need to do is ask your wife, gentlemen, when matters. This is years ago. Um, I got done teaching. I think it was after 8 o'clock. And somebody felt really convicted with truth. And they walked right up real quickly, and they were really mad at me. Because their conclusion on the truth was also the assumption that I avoided the truth. Like they had a point to be made, but they concluded that I deliberately ran from the point that he would have made in the sermon. And I was caught off guard. It was right between services. We we're about to light up the, the second service. And I went, no, no, no. I, I, I don't think that deep. I, I missed that one. Maybe. I, whatever. I just, but I went over to the side, and it seethed in me, which is going to be great for next week, our talk on anger, because I'll just put my picture up on the <laughs> screen, and we can all say, don't do that. Don't be him. And it was so hard for me. Like, I had to get up and preach and try to be gracious, and I was ready to tear something apart, you know? Timing with truth is everything. And, and one last thought. touch. Paul has already told us in Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth in what? Love. You have not obeyed the command to tell the truth unless you've also included compassion. You can't tell the truth if it doesn't also have the sidecar of compassion. You haven't finished the task, you haven't obeyed the king, you haven't acted like Jesus, if you also aren't loving. Does that make sense? So let those thoughts condition how we go and live the truth. Ask God to quicken your spirit towards the things that aren't totally accurate. And then we're going to go live like Christ, yeah? All right, let's pray. Ask for his help. Lord God, I do ask that you would help us be transformed today, even in how we speak of things. God, that you would give us the conviction, one, of our tongue, that you'd give us the skill to know what to communicate. But God, make us soft in our hearts. Give us your compassion and your love as we speak your truth to our world and to our church. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.